G'day and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Ben Camilleri. And I'm Laura McKillop. Well, we'd like to start by thanking Juro and Paul for his uh, ongoing support in bringing you our live weekly Q&A. We'd like to um, thank Charles Williams. Um, he's fallen, struck ill tonight, so we'd uh, hope that he's on the men there and uh, we'll hear from him next week. And, uh, mate, keep, uh, keep uh, powering along and recover well. Tonight... Yep. Tonight in his spot, uh, we're thankful to be speaking to our sponsor, uh, Anijira and Paul Doyle, for giving us some time. No worries. Pleasure. Thanks very much Thank for you. the uh, late call-up. Oh, no, right, thanks for Anyway, where do we start and what do you need to know? Tell us a bit about yourself, mate. So I've been uh, running the Enduro brand since April last year. Uh been training dogs for probably the last 10 plus years, run my own training uh, business as well, which has taken a little bit of a back step due to the food sort of rising up. And then I compete with my own dogs in a sport called Schutzland or it's called IGP, which involves um, three different separate styles of training, which is tracking, obedience, and there's uh, what's called a character slash protection phase. So it's uh, quite diverse for a dog's um characters to be shown because they've got to be quite independent then they've got to be quite bonded and then they've got to be quite strong so it's quite uh quite different to get the right temperament of dog to suit the sport which is um same challenge we all face really yeah absolutely mate is there different array of breeds i'm, I'm guessing there as well predominantly malinois and german shepherds yep would be the would be the standout dogs and then you've got around the edges you've got your rot or your dobermans yeah, right, yeah. How many collies and kelpies are and coolies there, mate? Very few, but overseas there's a few uh, border collies. Yeah, no, yeah. definitely overseas in France. I think there's about half a dozen. Yeah, wow. Yeah. How did you get involved with that? Oh, look, I had one of my rotwheelers years ago and then I loved the style of training that uh, we did with, with an old Scottish guy and it was quite old school and... It actually worked really well and didn't know much about training back then. Probably this is going back 15 years ago. Didn't know much about the training, just thought it did really well for the dog and thought I like that. Got the next dog, um, tried to seek out a similar style of training and um, there wasn't too much of that going on anymore, which is um, probably an old school style of training and landed in a place where they did both um, IGP training as well as, just general um, basic obedience and just got a passion for it. At first, I actually didn't want a bar of it. I thought I didn't want my dog to be interested in the, the biting side of life and that that sort of didn't really understand the um, drive expression and the outlet associated with that. Um, and my particular dog at the time was a little bit soft anyway, but obviously followed the journey, then did um, what's called the NDTF, which is the National Dog Trainers Federation. So I went and done um, a degree in that and got qualified as a dog trainer. Um, and then through that link, uh, one of the guys that runs one of the big boarding kennels around the country um, also did a lot of that stuff. So we sort of learned and grew and then I got the right dog that needed the outlet for it and then you get hooked. Beautiful. Right. Absolutely. So uh, what dogs do you have in your current team there, mate? You mentioned a rotwheeler there. Yeah, so I've got two rod wheelers. So I've got the original rod wheeler and then I've got the one that's more desired for sport and then the wife's got the staffy. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so one of the challenges is, I mean, look, you can get, you know, the, the best breed Malinois or the best breed German Shepherd, but you've also got to live with them, particularly in a, a city environment. So in my lifestyle where I do travel and bring the dogs with me occasionally, the dogs have got to be very balanced and it's it's more of a sport than it is a you know, a working element where they're, they're doing more sports side of things on a part-time basis than the working um, side of it all the time. So whereas you can, you know, get a high-strung Malinois, but the reality is you have to work that dog daily. Yeah. Otherwise, the, you know, that's why a lot of them end up getting rehomed. Yeah. And what does your daily, like you say you got to work them daily, what is that for your dogs? Like it could be as simple as a simple game. We'll just t- touch on base on earlier, a game of tug. Like for a, for a Malinois, they're extremely driven for uh, biting something, and that's just as simple as biting a tug. Yeah. Um, 
but in terms of predominantly a lot of it's mental stimulation. Oops. Yeah, mate, I'm here. That you're all right. Someone got a message and the it went a bit slower. There's that. That's cool. Right. Mate, okay. <laughs> um, while we're talking dogs, mate, you still remember your first dog? Yeah, it was again another Rottweiler. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so mine um, as well. Yeah, so it was it was a big. It was big, mine big, actually. <laughs> Look, I've always loved them in terms of their um, their characteristics. But as with every working breed throughout the entire world, I mean, everything's changing. So you have, you know, Mustard Dogs is a great show, but you'd also have now a lot of city folk buying a working dog, which yeah. is exactly where it's ended up with uh, Rottweiler, where you've got show dogs that couldn't run around the block. And you've got these other dogs, which are on the other extreme, which are just sort of like mini Malinois or large Malinois. Then you've got Malinois with a movie dog and, um, all the other shows now, and you've got a lot of people buying Malinois, which have no right to. Yeah. But in saying that, there's a lot of breeding where it gets diluted. And now you'll end up with, you know, similar issues in terms of the working dogs where you have some really great working dogs end up in homes where they just won't necessarily get the drive fulfillment they need, um, which is fine because people like us go and train them and, and that's, yeah. that's great too. You earn a little bit of money that way. But it's sad for the breed, right? Because then it dilutes some of the breed qualities and it's not necessarily what they're bred for organically. Yeah. No. Yeah, we see that, time mate. Sorry? I said time will tell in respect of that. But, I mean, look, you know, having the an opportunity like, you know, your place just outside of Sydney there is great for the guys in the city to get an outlet for working dogs to actually get them something to a be passionate about b possibly get interested in the sport and c give the dog some drive fulfillment so it doesn't end up back in a shelter and actually lives a, a quite a good life no absolutely mm -hmm. mate. they're pretty rare at the moment oh it is and some of the extent that or oh, i speak about our clients like personally that they go to to give those dogs that fulfillment it's they go above and beyond like half my clients i always say to them like if i die can i come back as your dog like they get yeah. proper looked after. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, you know, that's the market of the town, right? So, yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's different, but it's, look, it'll be interesting how that show, you know, sort of progresses through and what the impact is on the breed, to be fair. But, um, you know, fingers crossed, that doesn't doesn't dilute it too badly. No, absolutely. Mate, you, you mentioned that, was it IGP there earlier? Yeah, so that, that's what the sport's called. So it's a, it's a yeah. German acronym. Yeah, do you remember? Do you know what the? Nah, the no, it's, it's, a big, it's a big long word, but um, but yeah, look, I mean, look, it, I suppose look on face value, if you looked at sports in certain ways, and the same as you know all the sports that we're all involved in, um, perceptions are often there in terms of how stuff happens, but it, there's quite a distinct differential now around the world, and that is, you know, for our dogs, they have to come out happy. So yeah. if your dog looks remotely shut down in any capacity, they actually strike you from the field. Yeah. And so generally, that's in a trial, yeah? Yeah, it's in a trial. So, again, it's, it's you know, I suppose the, the momentum around the world in respect to training methods, um, you know, it's sort of if you look back, if you looked at any video from the 80s, 1980s, 1990s, particularly in the protection element of the sport, the yeah. dogs were very very they they would respect their handlers very well because they know that on the other side of that leash there used to be a fairly severe uh correction okay. accordingly yeah and so now it's about massaging that drive and channeling that that energy so that the dog understands what the again the quickest way to the opportunity is through behavior yep and and how do you encourage so for you guys when you you know you start your pup how do you go about starting your pup how do you progress through how do you get them started and go through and and keep that that drive yeah well that's that's the key thing right so genetics is you know hey without without the engine yeah um you you end up with a lot of failures two years in right a lot of hours a lot of time so i mean obviously there's three phases so you've got the tracking element which is you know teaching a dog to find every single footstep that a person's just made and they've also got to find articles on that track which has either got your scent initially or as you progress, somebody random. But they have to walk within, 
or half a meter or 400 millimeters from that person's track. Otherwise, you can be disqualified. Yep. And then your obedience is about a nine-minute routine of um, you basically it's a bond with your with your handler, and that includes uh, jumps. That includes uh, what's a 1.8 meter, what we call an A-frame, which is yep. essentially going up and down, retrieving dumbbells. It's um, but you get you get awarded points on I suppose what you call a bit of unison. And then you've got the protection element, which progresses from uh, one level through to the third. And so how do you train it? I mean, look, it's all about drive building. Yeah, right. Drive building, drive channeling, drive capping. So essentially you've got, a, you know, dogs that have already got the engine, you've got to build that. Yeah. Dog has to understand that in order to get the desired outcome is, needs to be trained accordingly. Yeah. And how do you then, like, develop you know from a tug through to your your trialing how do you develop that through yeah so i mean you've got obviously you've got two styles of thoughts right so one would be that when you saw the sleeve you think police training and yeah. and there is a close link to that but it's not necessarily the same way so in terms of the sport it's essentially just getting a larger tug mm -hmm. so the dog builds confidence through winning the games by securing the tug and eventually builds up the confidence to take the tug on. And then you build a little bit of drive channeling between prey and aggression. Yeah. There is a little bit of aggression in there, but predominantly it's mainly prey driven. Whereas yeah. if you do the police stuff and you do the other stuff, it's generally on the other side of that, which is, you know, no tools, no, no toys, no, no, nothing on the, on the person. So the dog is actually going to bite for real. Whereas 99% of, the dogs that we're with wouldn't display any of that aggression because it's not, there's no game involved. Do you, um, when you do your trials in those three elements, are they always in the same, um, like the same way? Like you might do like your tracking, then your, your grab work and then your finding your, oh, sorry. And yes. then your, your obedience or. Yeah. So that, that, that and I'm asking for a reason because I'm actually gonna I'm actually leading into something here. Yeah, no, all good. So, so in the dog sports, they're like in our stuff. There's probably about five different sports, but yep. in my particular sports, it is quite pattern training. Yep. So it is quite you know they they do see a very similar picture. It just gets harder and harder and harder in respect of what you're asking to achieve. Where could these dogs are so motivated with the the grab work? Where does that sit in your in that trial? Oh, look, it's all equal points, so you can't I get don't know, I mean, like in the, Do you do that first, second, or you no. do that last? No, so gen, generally most trials is the obedience. Yep. Then you come back and do the protection phase. Yep. And then the third phase is normally the next morning you do the tracking. And, and the reason and, I asked, recently I had a dog here that um, we were training, and any time you put a lead on this dog, it would shut down. Um, and... I'm one of these guys that I, I like that my dog to respect me a bit and I try to move it around. But we found, against anything I normally do, I used a tug on this dog. Yeah. This dog would do anything for me. Yeah. I, I had this dog jumping on the do on the top of my dog box, like just not even touching the train with you and just jumped down that, and just for to have a crack at this rope again. And all of a sudden being on this rope wasn't a chore anymore. It was like, where's the rope? I want, I want to be on your slip lead. I want to work with you. Because I know at the end of it, I'm going to get to chewing this on this tug toy on this on this bit of rope with knots in it. Yep. So that's why I was asking because if you guys use that as a motivator through your through your training, like can you see the dog might get shut down a bit in obedience, doesn't enjoy it as more. Then you do that grab work and it just it just ramps it up higher for your tracking. Yeah. So so yes and no. So the key thing is so in obedience, that dog has to be highly motivated for eight and a half minutes. Yeah, so right. then you've got then you've got obedience in the protection phase because without obedience you can't have a rogue dog. Yeah. So the dog is yes. So the dog is equally motivated differently, i.e. he knows what the toy is going to be at the end, which is obviously the guy with the sleeve. But in yeah. the obedience, the dog has to have been prepared to have been rewarded numerous times. So essentially, a variable re uh, schedule of rewarding so that you can play with a tug, a ball, food whatever that may be like essentially it's whatever the dog finds motivating or rewarding is what the dog gets rewarded with yeah so that's the key thing so we do a lot of aggression cases these days with play yep 
in the aggression case, I'm talking about human aggression, dogs and the like. How do you break down the barrier between the human and the dog? A lot of it is introducing play and having the dog win during that game that actually breaks down the barriers of the aggression. And it's amazing to see that because I've, I've witnessed it copious amounts of time and there's hundreds of ways to train all various things, but that's just one method that's been quite successful um, recently. It's cool to watch those transformations too, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's the key thing. See what lights up the dog. And, you know, you can talk about a fairly shut down dog that has been either mistreated or just fearful. How do you break fear down? Well, you build confidence. Yeah. And how do you build confidence? You build confidence, exactly. So yeah. through proper tug play, you create the wins. So you artificially create the opportunity for the dog to be successful. Uh, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. It's a bit different to the rope, but it's similar. Like it's the same yeah. concept. But the, the the key thing in the early days is letting the dog win a little bit so that their confidence gradually grows and then they win a little bit more, but then you try a little bit harder so that it's harder for the dog to, to win. But gradually is gradually building that building block of confidence to actually succeed. And then you can overlay that as your reward. So take your dog that was a little bit fearful of lead well, now, now the opportunity is there may be the opportunity to play that game. But at Absolutely. first, you have to have passion for it. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I look at now, obviously, in the in the enduro side of things is I've gone to a lot of the working trials, go out to a lot of the working dog guys that do the training, get to spend some time, get to understand the training methods. And, you know, it, take our sport as an example. Our motivator is not on that field. Yes, it is in protection but it's not in tracking and it's not in obedience. Whereas every time, you know, your dogs come out on the, on the field, the that sheep, and the cattle are there, the motivators are all there. So yeah. now if your dog's genetically driven to, to work, you don't have a problem with motivation. Hmm. You have a problem with control or you have a problem with too Obedient. much. It, yeah. Too much, you know, of that. So again, that's where it's a little bit different. I have to, fake it till you make it so to speak in terms of building up that drive level and the enthusiasm whereas you're literally it's out there already yeah yeah and you're right laura go i was gonna say you've been traveling around a little bit and um visiting some you know trainers and whatnot are you seeing many similarities between our training and your training yeah, fundamentally it's all the same yeah it's just how you apply the the, the, the mechanics yeah. So, I mean, dogs, dogs learn in the same way, no matter which method you use. It's just there's different words for it. Obviously, having done the, the, the training certificate and everything else, you know, they can get quite bogged down in technical speak, um, whereas, you know, most people just it's, – it's dogmanship. It's just how, you, how you, you know, you understand your dog, you understand your, your sheep, so you understand the motivation between the two. So, therefore, you naturally are just doing stuff without any real – wording or cognitive nature to it it's just it's natural so yeah. complicating it you mean yeah exactly yeah. absolutely and sometimes yeah. you know at the end of the day training can be extremely overcomplicated, and ultimately the dog in front of you decides which method or you know which style or what you end up doing so absolutely there's, there's no two dogs the same right and they all need something a little bit different 100 percent. so i mean most of my last 10 years have been about building the toolbox yeah. And just, you know, because you just pull one of those things out of the box occasionally for that one dog. Like that play thing might work for one of the two of those dogs, but might not absolutely not work in others. They'll bite your arm off. So, yeah. you know. What's this tug thing? What's this rope? What, what, what's this rope? I like the hand behind the tug and I'll take that. So, look, it depends on the dogs and everything else. But to answer your question, Laura, I mean, there's a lot of great skilled um, trainers all throughout this country, which is phenomenal. There really um, is great to see. So, you know, I was yeah, away, away from the trainers, have you taken anything from what you've observed over the last, you know, near 12 months now, getting around to a lot of these trials? Have you noted, have you taken anything away from the actual dogs themselves and gone, huh, what can we apply back here? Oh, I've got my own views on, on stuff yeah. that I'd love to take one of your pups down and give it a crack for a few months, but. <laughs> Um, look, ultimately, it's, it, it's, it's time is a big thing. So, you know, time is just not something that 
in a functional world, you don't have a lot of to do the sort of stuff and the development stuff that we would do for our dogs, but that's a different scenario, right? We're not applying them to work. We're developing for a, a competition or a sport down the track. Whereas majority of the guys that are out there trialing are actually also out there working, which means you're overlaying training and working and how to get the most efficient outcome that you can. And ultimately that's going to be the quickest route to training. So um, look, there's there's a few different things. I mean, genetics is a core thing. Like again, ultimately, you know, you can't be good genetics in a dog. Yeah. And, And I see in pockets of the trial where, you know, you've got good handlers, which will mask some of the, the dogs, some of the weaker points. And then you've got some points in a trial where the dog shows its true genetics, irrespective of how well it's trained or the, or how well the handler can, you know, get trial savvy. Um, and that's the same in every application, not, not working dogs, not sport dogs. That's there's, there's certain, you know, times within a trial where you get to see the, the raw genetics of the dog. No, absolutely. And it's been able to observe that, to be honest, and actually recognize it. That's the, that's probably the key thing for everyone. There's actually a question just come through from Scott Warrington. Um, he says, Paul, regarding training a dog for competition in your style of trials, in your view, can a dog not make the grade to enter into competition or is it possible to train all aspects into your particular breeds? Short answer is not every dog will make the grade. And that's purely because the dog doesn't have the natural drive to achieve it. Mm-hmm. Um, in saying that, I trialed two weeks ago with a bull mastiff or a bull uh, bulldog, an Aussie bull, an Australian bulldog or something. And whilst the, you know the obedience wasn't the most drivey, the, the dog's tracking was on point. I think he got ninety eight percent, ninety eight points. It was beautiful to watch. Big, you know, Gumby looking thing. He was, to be, to be really honest, he had all the obedience to basically pass what he needed to achieve. So yeah. he actually got his title. Was he the most animated? Was he the most um, skillful? Was it the best dog? Absolutely not. But he did enough to, I suppose, ultimately pass the test. Um, the, the key thing, I suppose, to call out is in the protection phase, whilst it's getting watered down again, you know, with the world the way it is, it's still a stress test. So ultimately it is a test between the, the man and the dog and the handler is not involved. And so ultimately a dog that doesn't lacks that heart and desire essentially won't make it. You'll do enough to, you know, again, if you take the, the muster dog scenario of the, you know, the working dog ending up in the, in the city home, there's a lot of working dogs where people have got the passion, just genetics doesn't bring the dog through. Yeah. And is Absolutely. there any is there anything you have to meet before you can take a dog to a trial? Yeah, so you've got to do a temperament test and and, a, and an actual obedience yeah. um, test as well. So before you're allowed to do any of the fun stuff, um, you actually have to go through a full temperament test of the dog. So that's about control and obedience and control. And then it's people, traffic, noise, gunshots, um, all sorts of stuff, and essentially assessing the dog's suitability to maintain his composure throughout all of those that's pretty interesting like 100%. the the things they have to go through and you know temperament like you said the gunshots the road noise all that before they can before you can take them out it's, it's pretty cool to yeah, yeah so i mean it's originally a, a police dog testing so back in the 1920s when it was developed was originally for the police yeah. And it used to be a breeding ground where the police would, you know, potentially buy a dog from those particular sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why, like, so in the obedience, there's gunshots that go off and the dog must maintain that, basically show neutral aspect and maintain that control and drive through the obedience. Yeah. How much time would you... Um, how much time would you spend training... Before I did this job... <laughs> a phenomenal amount. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before, before, like I had a great um, romantic view that I'd take my dog traveling everywhere I went. And I think I've done that twice and it was such a punish that I won't uh, do it too much again. 
Um, <laughs> but essentially, I, like from a pup, my dog has had a an enormous amount of training put into it. Um, enormous, enormous workshops from around the world, seminars. Again, just just growing my brain, but at the same token, bring your dog to the seminar and gain as much tools as you can. So realistically, that was at least two hours a day in back before I sort of you know ventured down the uh, the dog food path. And yeah. What took you into the dog food path then? Oh, essentially a redundancy, to be honest. Yeah. But um, no, so my business partners I've known for 20-odd years. Um, back when I actually did packaging, they had a, we, had a, we had a plant out in Forbes. So we actually manufactured dog food and, and everything out in Forbes, and of which I supplied all the packaging probably 20-odd years ago. Um, yeah. And, you know, knew the family and knew the whole thing for, through the whole journey. And um my business partner, because he's always had a pet food facility and always been in dogs himself, he bought the brands 13 years ago. Um, and lo and behold, you know, I've obviously got that uh, crossover in the dogs. So I thought, well, it's a good opportunity to get involved and, and train dogs, see dogs, watch dogs training, and, and obviously complement that with the with the dog food. And sadly, the dog training's taken a backward step, although the toolbox is growing, learning a lot from all the working dog guys around the country um but essentially my own training's probably dropped off a little bit but uh hopefully not for too much longer met some great people around the traps though absolutely and i mean look we're um we're across the hunting dynamic the working dog the the family pet so you get to have quite a diverse range of people mm. um even even if you think about the scent work and the tracking that i put in some trainers, not all, but some trainers in the in the hunting side of things actually do utilise a lot of the scent work. So there's some really good crossover in terms of that training and, and some of the stuff that I've seen from some of the better trainers out there, that's for sure. How, how do you go training for your scent work? Do you get the missus to walk around and get the dog to track her footsteps or how, how do you go about oh, that? So you got you got two points, right? So obviously from the tracking for the sport side of things, that's me laying a track and then the dog coming afterwards to, to find that that's in the initial training. And then it progresses to somebody else. And then it progresses to, to the age of the track. So the highest title is about two and a half hours from the time that that first person put a footstep on the track and it's a thousand meters. Wow. So I haven't That's quite got that. The roll wheel is, doesn't quite have that stamina just yet, but um, so that's that one. And obviously I train scent work, as well as other stuff. So that has, you know, conduits into um, the guys that I train with do despite um, uh, drugs, um, all sorts of manners and stuff, and they develop dogs for the police and the army. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. A lot of the stuff that I've learned from a scent work perspective is developed around working dogs from selling to the uh, forces. Yeah. How, how would you encourage that or start that from a part? Well, how how do you how do you make that blossom? Look, there's 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 multiple different ways. I mean, one of like if you take scent work as an example, where they train them for the military, one of the guys actually does it off the mother's um, nipples, and actually yeah. puts and actually puts on the nipple uh, might be some um, some bond type stuff. Um, so a scent under there, they might put it under the food bowl so that the dog associates the scent from birth yeah. and literally so on the nipple that scent is always available and so therefore at the food bowl the scent is already there and it's been the most rewarding thing in that dog's first 10 weeks of its life so that it's a lot easier to train the scent when you've got that strong yeah. association to the link oh that means food scent. <laughs> so again it's it's about what motivates the dog initially right so you know, that's, that's one of those things. And essentially with our stuff for the tracking, a lot of it is food-based food yep. because it's it's a different style of training. The dog has to, you know, bury its head down for quite a long time. And that could be in sand, it could be in grass, could be in a foot of grass, could be a metre of grass, could be against a headwind, could be rain, could be snow. Um, you know, you rock up at a trial and it is what it is. Yeah, it's it's raining cool. if you're tracking through the rain. It's if if it's just the luck of the draw. One of the ones I failed in, unfortunately, I hadn't trained for it, was we landed up out with a whole bunch of kangaroos and kangaroo um, 
stuff everywhere. And um, let's just say he went, he was thinking more about hunting than he was about working. So um, he didn't track. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's just something that I hadn't um, trained him through. It could have been reindeer. You could have called him Wilson. Wilson! (laughs) Could be anything. But let's just say he knows how to track through uh, kangaroo shit now. Yeah. (laughs) And And he won't be deviating too much from there. But again, it was an experience that you generally don't, get in like you don't see at a trial that's just not a a normal thing but when they chose the trial field there wasn't any kangaroos the next morning there was hundreds of them well unless you didn't have to give him a feed no this is true this is true does that make him vegan because it come out of a kangaroo about his grass or how's that work oh he's he's a well-trained dog he's fine (laughs) um question here from joe levin he's asked we say command over instinct. Behind the motivation is the instinct. What would the most effective psychological method be to gain command over instinct? So essentially you're suggesting the, the control when the dog's in the highest drive, right? Mm. So so part of that is the dog understanding what, what the end game is. So a dog will always go to the shortest point of what it wants to achieve. So if the dog, so in our training as an example, let's just say it's in high drive extreme, wants to go and have a bite of the tug or the the sleeve as an example, the dog must understand that through behavior, he gets that opportunity. So that's how we can motivate that, maintain that motivation is we might only capture that moment for five seconds and he gets rewarded, but then that five seconds will get elongated out so that we call a drive capping so that the dog is actually sitting there highly aroused but won't break that that effort until he knows that until he gets the command but again that's around time for for us it's around the the the, the hope can never outweigh the um correction so essentially if you correct the dog and he shuts down as an example then he doesn't have hope anymore Whereas if the correction only corrects him into a position of obedience, but he gets the opportunity to then get the get access to the sheep or to the toys or to whatever, the dog doesn't shut down. He just understands that that's a that's a, a essentially a stopping process to get to what you ultimately wanted in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, it's that yeah. balance, right? Like it's it's again how 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 hard do you pop the leash? I mean, you can pop the leash really hard and that dog won't do anything again. But then that's essentially stopping all behaviours, not keeping them to do the behaviour that you wanted in the first place. Or ultimately, again, if the dog understands that that, that leash pop or that whatever that motivator is, is, is to, it's going to lead to the next opportunity for what they want, they, they generally will accept that pressure quite well. And all depending on your bond with that dog too, right? And how quickly you can build that relationship. Hundred percent, and and just the, the the success rate for the dog. So has it been, you know, has it had that success or the opportunity to get to, as an example, if we talk working dogs, like has it had the opportunity to work the sheep? So therefore, when you call it back for the control, same as the teach and the stop. I mean, from what I've, you know, a lot of the stop that I've seen out there is, you know, in some processes, it's already done in high drive. So it's a lot harder to teach a stop when a dog's fully motivated to do what it's genetically programmed to do. Whereas, you know, for us, we would teach that stop off the sheep and then your dog at least has half an ear for the stop. So there's less pressure on the stop, on the, on the dog to perform the stop, but ultimately understands the stop is going to link him to the success that he wants in the first place, Yeah, which is chasing sheep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, do you find, guys find, well, is there different, like for different ages, is there different levels of competing for what you guys do? Yeah, so for us, you've got to compete at 15 months is the earliest. 15 months. And the reason for that's a lot of jumping. Yep. So you've got to, you know, your hips and elbows have got to be x-rayed, obviously. Most of them do that. Um, they've got to be able to jump. And as I said, you're talking a one-meter jump. You're talking a 1.8-meter uh, essentially a wall climb. Um, you're talking quite a lot of athleticism, particularly if you take my guys, that's 48 kilos. So, it, you know, they've got to be quite strong and athletic. And is there a sweet spot in age you guys find for, for your larger breeds? 
probably three years. Yep. Yeah, probably three years is when they become the most mature. Yeah. But it, again, depends on the dog, depends on what training you've done. You know, it, it really depends. I mean, you'll get some dogs that are super efficient by 18 months, but they're probably no longer competing in the sport of three. Yeah. Yeah. And like everything, people use sport for breeding. So, again, if you think about there's an opportunity for to supply the corrective services or the police or the army, some of those dogs will get titled and you'll never see them again because they'll be able to showcase their worth to the agencies and then be able to be, you know, sell, sell on for higher price pups. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, if you take pups that are getting trained for the police and the army now, I mean, some are, some are anywhere between 16 grand and 60 grand. Wow. So one of the military <laughs> spent close to 50 grand not long ago for a dog out of Europe. Yeah. And, and I, I've got a, a mate here that does a bit in the um, army with um with scent dogs and they will just they'll just go for dogs and they'll just pay and pay and pay and then, um but they've got a massive list of for the dogs that don't make it as well like for rehoming huge. which is pretty good yeah it's huge i mean look at a lot of the guys that i associate with are they source dogs for the for those agencies and they the the washout rate's phenomenal yeah um, and one of the places where I train with, they import a lot of the dogs for the RAF. Mm -hmm. So they specifically have spotters all through Europe finding uh, the Belgian Malinois. And then, yeah, and then bring them into their own breeding program to, you know, hopefully down the track, you can create your own. And, and why why so the, the males, mate? Oh, look, they work in all conditions. So, you know, if you think about a police dog tracking a suspect, he could go for three to five Ks. You know, those dogs have to be able to work, you know, relentlessly and just have that drive to, to continue. Then if you look at the, you know, like let's, the, again, the law enforcement's changed. There's not too many police coming out to rights anymore. There's not too much in terms of the big old school rot wheelers with the big barks. It's more tracking. It's more the finesse work because the liability is phenomenal. So now it's about appetite for work. If you think about the RAF, I mean, these dogs are very expensive dogs sitting around an army base. They won't even get to do half the fun stuff that, um, you know, they're, they're bred and worked for. Yeah. yeah. But the special forces also bring a lot of the dogs in as well. Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever, um, ever get to compete against any of those dogs? Like they ever bring them out? No. Away from, away from sight? No, not so much. I mean, a lot of those guys, you, you change them from prey to yeah, a little bit of aggression. Animals, so, yeah, it, you know, a lot of the, the – they might have trained in the sport in their junior years before they're bought and sold on, but then the training style will change. Yeah. So typically, like just to put a caveat in there, you look at – you might see some TV footage of a guy with a suit getting bitten. In our particular sport, once you go into that element, they, don't, they won't let you compete. Yeah, well, wow. and that's the perception that the dog may or may not, you know, not necessarily channel one specific place on the body. You know, the dog can channel anywhere, and that's the reason why they train them that way is for that reason. Yeah, yeah, and there's actually a question here. Scott's asked another question. He's asked, "Are there genetic lines in Australia who consistently win trials?" Uh, there was quite a few, but they're getting diluted these days. So a lot, like particularly the people that were supplying the, the RAF up north, there was a particular style of Malinois that's littered all over the country and they were the chosen one because they were quite smart. But I think ultimately, as, you know, uh, agencies are looking for more, looking for different, looking for stronger dogs, and, and generally they're looking for their own breeding programs, they're trying to source outside the Australian gene pool. So yeah. that's, that's from the Malinois perspective anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, interestingly, two Rottweilers went to the New South Wales police um, as puppy candidates about six months ago. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so that's the first time in 18 years they've had a Rottweiler in the, in the, in the training. That's pretty cool, really. Still got two years to find out whether it passes. Yeah. <laughs> the main thing is they're open to it, and I think ultimately it's a rent depending on what the uses are. Yeah. So if you think of a lot of the sieges and stuff, they want a robust, strong, confident dog. 
if you look at the tracking, you want something with durability and, you know, just, just that ability to keep on going. Like I recently, when I was up through my travels, one of the seminars that I unfortunately missed out on, but they do all the scent work and they use Springer Spaniels. Yep. It's just the, the sensational um, ability to work for a ball. That's right. Like one of their jobs is actually interesting on an organic farm. They will, they will train the dog to sniff out the weeds so they can run through a paddock in one day that it takes four days for the farmer to actually complete. To grab a ball. Yep. <laughs> Ultimately, yeah. grab a ball, right? So Lincoln, <laughs> yeah. uh, the particular plant that um, says it can't spray them, you've got to go and take them out of the ground. They train the dogs up to essentially go through the entire paddock in a day, sourcing every one of those weeds. Ultimately for a ball. Yep. It's just unbelievable and phenomenal in so many ways, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's, I suppose that's the great thing about, you know, the position I'm in at the moment is I get to meet such a varied array of dogs, a varied array of working capacities. I mean, I, I, I never appreciated that you, when you put a vessel from Sydney across to Singapore or somewhere like that, you need a dog to go through and make sure there's no vermin on the boat. So they train dogs for that. Um, they're, they're training dogs for just about every single scent discipline. Um, mad cow disease, same guy's getting trained, like he's got a contract to um, train dogs up for scent on that. Yeah, wow. That yeah. was actually uh, my, my next question was, obviously you've got exposure to so many different dogs, people in, in so many different variety. Is, is there a message you have? that you see like the way people look after their dogs or dogs aren't, you know, what, what do you, what can you take away from what you've, what you see? Oh, look, you know, I've got my own personal view. You know, a dog must have time to film, right? So that's, that's you know, the person in the city trying to ball, whether that's a dog learning to use it. No, like we um, says we're having connection issues. Yeah, I just just seen your internet just dropped out a little bit there, mate. In Vienna. <laughs> look, I mean, I mean, look, I suppose dogs have purpose, and we can't get away from it. I mean, dogs are bred for a, you know, genetic requirement. I like the working dogs that you know we get to see a lot of. I mean, ultimately, that's what they're bred for. They're they're there to support the farm. They're there to do the work. And ultimately, it's about, you know, when those breeds become popular, as, you know, one of my concerns with the mustard dog style stuff is the, they lose that, that core within the genetics. Yeah, dilute. Um, so from that side, I mean, ultimately, you know, how people care for their dogs in, they run those dogs. I mean, that's the key. That's why I have them. Nope. You still with us there, Paul? I'm here. Yeah, yep. cool. Sorry, yep. you, we're just losing you right towards the end of that. But that's cool. We, uh, you got your message uh, across there, which is cool. Nice. Um, How are we going, there, Laura? We've got some stuff coming in. Yeah, another question here from Ollie Hanson. Uh, what's your favourite moment that you've had being involved with dogs? Uh, probably passing the trials, to be honest. Um, you know, sort of getting... The short story is my rottweiler true to bad training and uh, not necessarily mine, but I was, I did a lot of seminars and I went to a Czechoslovakian um, seminar and um, they're extremely brutal on their dogs and with lack of English misunderstood a few bits and pieces. And my dog probably went backwards about five years, even though he was only two years old. Um, oh, wow. a, lot, a lot of that became um, human aggression. So then I had to work for another 12 months to offset a lot of those challenges and to get him out there and pass the, the test and get the highest points for the night and, and to obviously succeed on the field, going from where we came from, that's probably the highlight of the moment for me is, you know, just achieving as a trainer, right? So, you know, everyone knows how hard they put into trialling and training and to have some success on the paddock is important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what keeps you going, right? Yeah. That's our motivator. 
I mean, I mean, men, you know, lesson to be learned, right? Don't go to a Czechoslovakian trainer with very bad English because <laughs> it gets lost in translation. So, um, yeah, it was pretty ordinary. So, yeah, but that's life. And from, I'm, if you don't touch on that, it's cool, but I'm assuming that um, the style had a bit of pressure on the dog and that the dog's it's, reaction yep. was, yeah. Oh, look, no, nothing, nothing, like nothing. It's just how the how it impacted the dog, but... Yeah, we were at a venue with probably about a hundred people, mm-hmm. and and they, like so we do retrieves for dumbbells, but they actually you lose points if a dog chews the dumbbell. So in Europe, to avoid chewing, you can put a phenomenal amount of pressure on the dog, and what they call is a forced retrieve. Put so much pressure on the dog that the dog basically closes its mouth, and you can shove a, a, a basically a pipe in there so the dog when the dog chews on the pipe, the pressure comes off. Yeah, right. um, but in this instance, it was more like a sign of the cross. There was like four people on the on each side of him, and like stress everywhere. Dogs fully on his own in the middle of a hundred people, and she had actually said that he would be aggressive, and I was like, "Nah, he's, be, he's nothing to grieve. He won't be aggressive. He'll be fine." He lit up like Christmas, yeah. um, and obviously that picture or that scent because obviously it was overlaid with a lot of dog scent because it was at a dog kennel. It had a lot of people involved. And so, you know, number of repetitions in that instance, the amount of stress on the dog, he linked all of that together to that one moment. Yeah. And that, that sort of sent him, if we went into an area where there was dogs and people because of that association, he would instantly be fire up a little bit. Again, yeah. And so, you know, again, if you think about the temperament test I said before, we have to get through a, gr- a group of people. The people have to come in on them, clapping, um, cars, buses, like you've got to pass all of that. And, I mean, I did three of those tests just to prove it in three different ca- um, different sports clubs um, just to, you know, give it a crack for him. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's look, it's just one of those things where, you know, you learn at seminars and, and – you learn some good stuff and you learn what not to do. Definitely. Uh, absolutely. And I can understand why that's such a great achievement for you. Like, like you mentioned, there to come through that after after having dogs so reactive. Yeah, like he's still he's still no angel, but he's he's a he's an obedient angel that like loves doing what he does. So therefore that offsets a lot of the other stuff. Yeah. But but yeah, look again, you live and learn, right? I, as I said, I did a lot of seminars, like learned a lot of different applications in training and you get to see what works and what doesn't work. And I'll probably, I suppose with my next dog, I probably wouldn't bring the dog along. Um, probably just, just watch the seminar as opposed to being the, the working spot. So that's a lesson itself sometimes, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And, and again, like for, you know, it's, it's no different. You guys have got heaps of workshops of which there's multiple different training methods that go on. And, you know, ultimately, from a trainer's perspective, they've got a weekend to fulfill what they've been paid for. So some of the training methods may not be what they'd actually do at home if they had time, but because they're there for a weekend to make sure that the dog is successful in the moment. And show you a um, result. They'll, they'll rush through stuff and you walk away thinking your dog's superhuman. It's you just <laughs> look at things, but you've actually been put back six months in some cases. In others, yeah. you've grown a phenomenal amount and, you know, the dog's brilliant, but, and that's just around sort of, I suppose, understanding what training methods people do so that when you go to those seminars, you have, you're a little bit more prepared about what to expect. Yeah. And it's because okay. I'm going to three of them um, this year and like, there'll be no dog with me and I'll go and learn some different stuff in my applications, but, um, and then obviously try and get to a few more of the dog schools with the, with the working dog side of things as well. Mate, speaking of, um, and you have spent a lot of time getting up the coast and down the coast and, and getting around, and like your brand was obviously pretty popular in the in the hunting dogs. Uh, it'd be, you'd be happy to see it, like, and every, everyone's on Facebook these days, um, and there's polls going everywhere and always a conversation. You'd have to be happy with the um, the feedback you're getting with your range in the working dog community. Yeah, always, always, love, always love good feedback, but also love bad feedback too, right? Because you've got to grow accordingly. So, you know, we know that the reason why there's 100 different training methods is why there's 100 different dog foods. I mean, yeah. not every dog food fits fits a dog. So, 
you know, to, to get the, we're still an extremely small brand. Um, you know, just like tell everyone we're a pimple on an elephant's backside. So, you know, for us to get popularity and, and, and some exposure is phenomenal. Um, but for me, I mean, the, I've spent a year and a half literally for me trying to understand what the dog, dog food does. More importantly, understanding what dogs actually require so that the two link together. Because ultimately, if a food doesn't do what it says it does or doesn't fit the criteria that it's promoted for, what's the point? So, I mean, most of the stuff that I'll advertise isn't coming from my brain. It's coming from the hours and days that I'm spending out there in the field, actually watching dogs work, understanding what it does or doesn't do for people, and, and in what cases it works or doesn't work for other dogs. So that, you know, as I get approached to see if the brand is suitable for them, I can answer a lot more questions in respect of, you know, my adage is take my, take my dogs. Yes, they're working breeds, but they're sport breeds and they lay a lot more in the lounge than they would in the work. Then you take some people in the working community that work their dogs one day a week. Some might go absolutely flat knacker, five, six, seven days a week. So the work word is quite a big, long word that, you know, means different things to different people. So it's about just understanding where the food actually sits within that dynamic. Yeah. And question just come through from Joe. He's asked, why can't I buy enduro at my local produce store? And I know you've got a great answer for this one. So oh, I don't know about that. I'm probably the fact that you guys are making us far too popular and we're madly <laughs> overselling. Um, that's, that's a probably a big challenge. Um, so there's, there's two parts to that. One is, as, you, as I pointed out, there's 100 dog foods on the market. So stores don't necessarily get to see podcasts like this. Stores don't get to go and watch trials. Um, they don't talk to working dog communities. So therefore, effectively, for them, who's enduro? Never heard of them. No one's ever asked for them. And therefore, they're unlikely to range that product unless Joe goes up to his local store and says, hey, I've heard about this great brand. And that's essentially how the ball has started. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've just been in a process of rebranding and, and fortunately or unfortunately, probably the last few weeks, we've oversold dramatically. So we're madly building the pipelines back into the market at the moment. But essentially from a sales perspective, that's why I'm spending more time out in the community because that's ultimately where I'd rather be spending my time and effort than at a store level. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And Mate, with and way, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Good problem to have, right? Absolutely, absolutely, mate. What um you mentioned there in the last year and a half, um, you know, getting around and what you've learned. What have what what are some of your biggest takeaways from being involved with a dog food company? Uh, look, not the food doesn't actually suit every person. Yep. That's that's ultimately, and people have got a variety of different ways of feeding. Um, people supplement food. People don't supplement food. People mix food. People win dog food trials and, and mix them together. And, you know, there's a variety of different stuff. So, you know, if you take the, which was quite new to me, to be brutally honest, was the communal feeding when I went up north. And, you know, I probably watched three or four dogs just get out of the kennels and think it was the greatest life ever. They were running around the paddock while 16, 18 dogs were smashing food. And, you know, I could see three of those four dogs come back and there was going to be very little food left for those guys, right? So, you know, I, I said to, I said to the, the, the guy at the time, I said, you know, don't be ringing me back up in a week and tell me the dog's not putting on any weight. So, again, you, you've got to take everything into context about how those certain things happen, how their feeding is, and ultimately get to the bottom of, you know, what, what is going really well and, and what's not. But yeah. that's, that's a big takeout, Dan, is really trying to understand, again, you've got, you know, some dogs just don't put weight on, as an example, and that's, I suppose, predominantly where our products tend to have a home is we've obviously got a high-aspect product in the hunting product, the full bore, and then we've got our working dog product, which is a high-spec in itself, and typically that's been a, a quite a sweet spot for the brand is typically dogs that have struggled to maintain weight or condition. Of my dog, and I was so hesitant the first time I met you to even put him on a biscuit again. And um, it has been the best thing for him. He was like almost RSPCA case, like he was skin and bone, and he's as fat as now. Like had to cut him back after probably a month or two of putting him on it. So it it's worked wonders on him. 
Yeah, that, that's brilliant. I mean, to be fair to suggest that over the last three or four years dogs have become far more like a lot more integral in terms of their usage and the amount of work that the dogs are doing now is is higher and higher again and so the demand on a dog food is getting higher and rightly so to be honest i mean you know you've got to expect what the packaging says in my opinion speaking of and and having you know been in there and having your own dogs what's the perfect health for a dog you know like should we a nice shiny coat obviously but slender seeing a rib not seeing a rib for yourself where do you fit in there? Oh, look that that's that's up to every individual if you look at my guys they, they don't show ribs that often and uh, that's yeah. only because he does have a um shoulder injury at the moment but um look essentially as lean as they can be yep yeah i mean look i like a little bit of cover over the ribs but you know again if you look at the application for you guys right the kelby's jump like no tomorrow right it's all part and parcel off the ute quads, bikes, you name it, they have to be lean. You, you can't not be. You can't be a rot wheeler doing that sort of job. It just doesn't It doesn't work. So ultimately, you have to keep a dog relatively lean. But on the, on the flip side, they have to have enough on them to burn off too. Yeah, true. So that's, you know, hey, that's the two things, right? If you don't have that little bit of covering over them and you're going into some very big days, obviously they eat into their, into all of their, the storage. So if you take the hunting side, which, again, most people think hunting is, you know, your pigs and stuff up north. I did a lot of work with the deer hunters down south. And those dogs do an average of 55 kilometres a night. Wow. So they, 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 start out at, they start out a relatively plumpy-looking dog, and by the end of it, they look like a malnutritioned um, hound dog. That's mm-hmm. the amount of Ks and calories that they're, they're burning off. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's phenomenal to see. Yeah, I mean, there's they're, they're letting out fifty at a time. What are they? Are they are they jumping off back of Utes as well, or how? Well, yeah, they? so they, they they leave they they go from April to September. Yep. And and literally, it's just massive packs of hounds. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal to watch. That's but again, yeah. different 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 criteria. Like again, these are all the the things you learn around the country. But so to hunt deer. You have to pass a height test, a certain style of hounds. Are only, there's only three style of hounds, I think, and those have to pass a height test to fit into breed standard in order to get certified to be able to hunt. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. Wilson, Wilson, the collie, the Kelpie uh, on YouTube, never seen that, seen that <laughs> height test before. Yeah, but it's um, you missed the memo. Again, it's it's again the varied applications that I've seen amongst dogs. So it's not just my own personal stuff now. It's the, you know, the hunting side for deer as an example, which is quite a unique thing. Um, then you've got obviously the hunting side up north. Then you've got the working dog side of things. And then we've got the, you know, your domestic pets and, and breeders and the like out there. So, again, you get to see different stud farms, let's just call it. And, and that word could be used quite loosely in, in, on occasion. <laughs> and... What's the difference between the plus and the full ball? Oh, very good, very good question there, Laura. <laughs> uh, predominantly, it, it, the recipe is different. So it has got a high protein and high fat, but it's also yep. got amino acids in it as well. And that's predominantly, if you think about the, the product was built for hunting dogs, which go through quite an arduous, um, I wouldn't say a battle, but they go through an arduous um, ordeal. Then they recover and then they do it again. So in order for dogs to be able to, you know, sort of go through some of the, 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 the stuff that some of the hunting dogs go through, that's why the amino acids was put in there to help them recover. But it is, yeah. it's got a high fat and a high protein and some of, the, some of the specs are slightly different. Whereas the working dog was always designed with what we call a slow release 
uh, property in it, which is just that slower east energy for the working dog all day. And when yeah. you say recover, you mean catch pig back on the ute or through yeah. troops? Both. It's actually so, you know, again, all the feedback we get is the dogs recover the next day to literally go back again. But it is about that. You know, again, talk to a hunter, dog hunts 12 hours every night. Yeah. He's hunting for about two hours during the whole 12 hours. He's just that he's out for 12 hours driving around the ditch. That's right. So, and, and then he's Usain Bolt for maybe two, two of those 12 yeah. when he's actually Correct. on a proper scent. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So, again, it's all about understanding the language, understanding what the dogs go through. I mean, some of the dogs up north are running two, three, four Ks. Like they are flat out, particularly right now, the, the feral population is phenomenal. It's everywhere, right? It's well, you can catch a pig in there out of Sydney, not even. Much. Yeah, <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen them around here. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so look again, it's it's all context and it's all about the, the right application for the product, and um, you know, that's the key thing. So, but enough about you don't want to be selling or, or promoting dog food, we're about dogs, aren't we? So yeah, sure no, no, cool. dog conversations. No, no, it's just cool yeah. hearing a little bit about it. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. Very cool. How are we going there, Laura? All good this end. Uh, cool. And, mate, um, being around and we asked about a message that you, you've taken away, What any feedback you'd like to give to the working dog community for what you have seen in your travels? Keep doing what you're doing. Yep. What, what about um, someone, um, obviously you get to a lot of trials and you haven't trialled yourself. Have you got any feedback? For I'm ready. Oh, Give me a dog. I'm ready. I'm pumped. Let's go. Oh, come and grab one. Go. <laughs> I, again, Sydney, I, again. Sydney trial, 28th of October. Beautiful. I'm ready. No dramas. Um, I, I mean, look, one of the, you know, from my, again, if you think about my background and, and what my passion is about working dogs and dogs in general, I mean, I look at utility trials as a, as where I like, I like to see dogs. So, you know, again, we're sponsoring one of those trials, but, the reason why I like, you know, when, when I get approached to do a trial, I'd rather multiple disciplines because it actually shows the genetic makeup of the dog and, and obviously the trainer as well in terms of the handler being able to put the dogs in front of, you know, different different stock, different um, tests and and sort of, I suppose, you know, the winner ultimately at the end of that is is a more well-rounded dog, which only lifts the, you know, the quality of dogs in general. And I mean, like, you know, there's a phenomenal amount of three sheep dogs out there and a lot sponsor the, you know, support the show and stuff like that. But I look at that and then, you know, very few can cross over into the yard, but vice versa. But that's actually happening more and more. It is. So the recent trial I was out down in Eden Hope, I mean, it was quite a, whilst the two separate organisations ran the separate trials, they allowed the competitors to um, trial in each. So, you know, the, the three sheep guys gave the yard a crack and some of the, the yard guys gave the three sheep a crack. And, you know, everyone had some tough lessons learned, I think, in terms of, um, you know, what they what their shortfalls were. Not necessarily genetics in that instance, more, more about training and the training picture. But, yeah. um, but for me, that's, you know, the more of those style events, I think the stronger the dogs ultimately in the breeding programs um, will become. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Right. And in your travels, you've met a lot of different people. Is there anyone you'd like us to sit down and have a chat with on Dog Talk? I think you've met most of the people that I ended up bumping into. Um, uh, if you come past another, be sure uh, to mate, shout out. Where, where's my big mate, Mick Hudson? What about Jake Nolan? What about <laughs> David Lee? Um, mate, there's plenty out there. Mate, you keep on them. I've already asked, and we'll I'll, see how we go. I'll, I'll keep hassling. Don't you worry about that. But, um, you know, just interesting. I mean, whilst you do, you know about it, Dan, but, I mean, obviously out in Dubbo, one of the guys that does a competing sport with us has been doing a lot of work out there with some of the working dog guys. Mm-hmm. And, and the feedback from, from that has been phenomenal. And that's just a different training um, technique or techniques, I should suggest, um, overlaying into the working dogs. But certainly... Um, the feedback I've got from the guys out, out of Dubbo has been really positive about that that side of stuff. Absolutely. And that's all about having an open mind, right? 100%. 100%. Look, we can't do the same thing we've done 20 years ago when 
I, th I think, look, genetically, a lot of dogs aren't what they were years ago is, is probably one of them. Um, not so much, I think, in the working dog. They're still holding true to this extent. But, you know, having more tools and, and more skills in your in your toolbox never goes to waste because you might just encounter that one dog or that one problem that, you know, you can't fix. So you either get rid of the dog or have that, have that tool in your box to be able to do it. And some of it's about relationship, right? Some of it's just understanding how, how to develop different relationships with your dog. Definitely. But yeah, no, there's a phenomenal amount of working dog guys in the community that I think um, you should hassle and get, uh, get on the show for sure. We'll keep at them. Hey, just, just take that logo off the top left-hand corner and just invite them on. No yeah. big deal for them. <laughs> oh, that's the way. Mate, again, um, hey guys, thanks heaps for um, the opportunity. You're and, right. uh, obviously, you, you haven't got off that quick just yet. Was there oh a question? That, was there was there a question tonight that stood out for you? And they will win a bag of Enduro dog feed. God, there was only three of them, but uh, Craig, right. I think, wasn't it? Or Joe, Craig? No, Craig. Was it Craig? No, no, there was Craig. There was Joe though. There was no Joe. Was about where he couldn't get it in his local store, so he should yeah. get a bag of dog feed. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, I reckon that's a great idea. Yeah, Joe, if you want to reach out, mate, um, send us your details. There's a bag of enduro coming your way. Easy. Uh, and, Paul, like Laura said there, thanks heaps for jumping oh, on tonight. Yeah. But she has got one more for you. And, 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 and just, just for, for – I was actually at um, Charles's farm, and he's a, he's a phenomenal guy, so hopefully he does get better and, um, you know, great experience. He was, he was kind enough to, uh, you know, let me into his farm and see what a – you know, mustering some cattle and uh, putting a city guy out there uh, – on the back of the quad with the dogs and it's pretty uh it's pretty good experience no that's awesome and um yeah fingers crossed he's back on the men but um we should be all good for next tuesday with charles so looking forward to that rest awesome. up mate so um, here we go big question of the night would you rather fight one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks and why Well, probably the one duck the size of the horse, because generally it'll just it'll just keep quacking. <laughs> just keep quacking, mate. You got a you got a dog there that does a rottweiler does bite work. You can just get that thing on. The... <laughs> well, very true, but you know, hey, it's it's all relative, so you know, hey, but you know, we can we can at least have a beak off or something, and it'll probably have a bigger nose than mine, so it'll be fine. <laughs> on that note, mate, thank all you right, very guys. much for your time tonight. Good much time appreciated. Is... Um, and thank you to all our viewers out there. And please remember, we learn every day, and the day we stop learning will be a sad one for all of us. Hopefully you get your audience back next week. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Good night. Thank you. See you guys.